0: first thing I would say is I started every single annual review with the sentence, if I say anything to you in the next hour that you don't already know, then it is a reflection of me as a bad leader and not you as a bad employee. Because if our communication is so poor that I hit you with any revelation in the next hour, this isn't on you.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. This is Ben Morton, and a very warm welcome to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. In this week's episode, we are joined by Richard Harwood. Now, Richard enjoyed a very successful career in financial services before moving into semi-retirement and spending more time on his charity commitments. But during his working career, Richard ran several financial services businesses, including two at the same time over several years, starting two from scratch before selling them. And he also managed teams both offshore and in the UK. I mentioned his charity commitments. Alongside his working career, Richard has been a prolific charity fundraiser and is now responsible for running Holidays for Heroes Jersey, which in 2022 brought over 400 wounded veterans and their families to Jersey for a well-earned break. And that season has just concluded with the visit of seven World War II veterans. Now, as a podcast host, I know I really shouldn't talk about my favorite episodes, but this episode is up there for sure. I think mainly because Richard struck me as one of life's truly decent human beings. He was, he is incredibly humble. And at the same time, he shared so much wisdom that I think we can all use and learn from to be better leaders and better managers for those people that we've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. Some of the highlights for me were certainly hearing about how he very deliberately changed his communication style, his opening words in every single performance review that he used to run, and how he said he felt a little lazy towards the end of his career because he'd reached that point where his team no longer needed him. So that just gives you a glimpse into what you are going to hear and learn about from Richard. And I'm absolutely confident that you are going to love this episode. But before we get into the episode, do please head over or make a mental note to check out the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com because there you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free. It's bite-sized, and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It also frequently gets consistently great five-star feedback. So do please go and check that out. It is a free resource for you to use. But now, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode, and please enjoy the wisdom generously shared by Richard Harwood. Richard, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you with us today. First of all, let me just ask, how are you? I'm very well,
0: thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: It's my, it's my pleasure. Richard, I'd love to just start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about your current role with Holidays for Hero Jersey and, and I guess a little bit of the, the career journey that preceded it and what led you to, to where you are now.
0: So the career journey and where I am now have no correlation. I spent my life in the finance industry. I worked for a couple of very good firms and then realised that I probably wasn't the ideal employee because I am rather opinionated and I like to go my own direction. So I started my first firm in 2000, sold that to a management buyout in 2008 and then started my second one later that year and sold that in 2018. So the career was finance, and then I'd been very fortunate, um, been relatively lucky, and I wanted to give something back. So I got the chance to take over running this most amazing charity that brings wounded veterans to the island of Jersey to give them holiday rest and recuperation. And, yeah, I jumped at it. It's a way of giving back, but it's also just the most rewarding thing I've ever done.
1: Yeah, so... Did you have any particular connection with veterans before doing that? I'm curious, kind of what made you leap at that opportunity?
0: I I don't. um, There is no major military connection in my family. My uncle was in the Royal Navy many years ago before I was born, but that wasn't it. I've always been very conscious about the fact that where we are born determines the luck we have in our lives. Mm. And in my case, my parents moved to Jersey when I was 16, My main skills were being rather good at arithmetic and talking to people, and they landed me on an island where those skills carried a higher value than they perhaps should do. So I had a good life, and I just believe in giving back. And this opportunity came up. It was a friend of mine who was running it. They were looking for someone to take over, and I issued the fatal words, if you can't find anyone else, I'll do it because it's too important to let it stop. And at that point, they stopped looking. So, um, <laughs> there's a lesson, there's a lesson there, right? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I guess I'm particularly interested in this because of my service background. But I just wonder: has the work you've done with Holidays for, for Heroes has that changed your view of veterans? Have you kind of learned anything in particular around kind of veterans and service people?
0: It, it's changed my view of life. Wow, it is very difficult to think outside of your own world I I think to try and do that is exceptionally difficult for most of us and the veterans that I have met over the last three years have lived in a world that I've never been near they have experienced things that I will never experience I hope and it has affected them in ways that I can't actually comprehend and what I mean by that is we get quite a few visitors with PTSD coming over, which I'm sure you understand. My number two is a veteran, and I mentioned to him that 70% of our guests now had PTSD. And his reply to me was, no, Richard, 100% of our guests have PTSD. 70% of them are diagnosed. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's a different perspective. But as you know, when you arrive at an airport, before your luggage comes around on the carousel, there'll be a flashing light or a sound that goes off just to let you know that the carousel is about to start. And one of our guests got so phased by that noise that he sent a message out to everyone else who was arriving later that day to warn them about the alarm that went off, and it affected him to the point that he didn't get involved for the first day because he was still recovering. Now, that is a noise that I had never even heard Yes, now that you point it out to me, I know it happens. But in my world, that it was just a noise. But for him, it was a problem and it was very, very difficult. So, yes, I've become much more aware that people have seen things that I'll never see. It's had an effect on them that will be lifelong. And also that perhaps they don't really feel that their service has been recognised. I think that's one of the saddest things. Jersey is a very royalist and loyal island to the armed forces for very obvious reasons, given its history in the Second World War. And trying to explain to people that if somebody approaches them on Jersey, it's going to be to say thank you for your service, rather than to pick a fight with you, is quite difficult for some people to get their head round, particularly our guests from Northern Ireland. So, yeah, it's taught me a lot, and uh, it continues to do so every year.
1: Yeah and what about what you said your number 2 is a, is a veteran yeah and what what about working with uh, is it is it a man or a woman yeah
0: it's gentleman um yeah. yeah i mean lee is singularly the best support i could possibly have because every time i come up with an idea i run it by him and he runs it through his army brain and says well that's how that will be taken i mean one of the first things that i did when i took over is we removed any question on the application form about regiment or rank. Right. Because it taught me that squaddies believe that they will get a squaddie experience and generals believe they'll get a general's experience. I'm not making a comment on that. (laughs) But I wanted it to be very clear that you will all be treated the same, you have all served, there are no questions, and that when you get here, we will treat you all equally. And I think that that changes a dynamic. Because if people want to talk about their service with their fellow veterans, that's fine. And if they don't, it's equally fine. And, you know, if you put together the people that you have in each week, you will be 100% wrong on who will pair up and form friendships because it is the most unlikely people you can possibly imagine. But something clicks, some connection is there. And, yeah, that's exceptionally pleasant to watch.
1: Yeah, I guess that's, that's an interesting parallel lesson there with life as well and, and, and business, I guess, isn't there? We can make all sorts of assumptions about the people that will go together and where they'll be be cultural fit, but they are just assumptions and can so often be com- completely wrong, right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, to be brutally honest, a way I wish I'd done this before I, I ran businesses because I've learned a lot more about people, as you say, a lot more about making assumptions and also I've learned that just because I see the world one way, somebody else will see it exceptionally differently. Now, in business, you have disagreements about direction and this, that and the other, and that's fine. But here you're talking about brains being wired so differently because of experience or something else that it's almost impossible to view the world in the same way. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've now made the holiday week incredibly flexible. You'll get families with young children who come over were in the, if the weather's right it'll be the beach or the aqua park at the hotel and a couple of attractions but basically it's the old adage if the kids are happy then the parents are happy yeah. you'll get older couples who come round who'll pretty much att- go and see every attraction on the island so we've really just made it as flexible as possible for you to have the holiday that you want and touchwood so far the feedback has been positive
1: yeah amazing So Richard, I've probably completely thrown you because we're like nearly 10 minutes in and I've not really asked you any of the questions I I, I thought I'd ask you. That's absolutely fine. I'm I'm fascinated by something you said just then. You almost wish you'd done this job with Holidays for Heroes before your, your business career. And I guess this is putting you on the spot. But having said that... Are there any things that spring to mind straight away that kind of with the knowledge, experience, insight you've got now, you you would have done
0: differently as as a business leader? Yeah, I mean, for starters, I think most of us as business leaders evolve over time. If I look back at my own management style in the early days, it was leading by example. And I would be the first one over the top, guns blazing. And in my later life, it all came down to find the right people, encourage them, support them, set the tone and then basically facilitate them. It stopped being about me leading and it was more about I found the right staff, I'm going to empower them and every time that they start to worry that they're getting it wrong, you support them, you let them bounce ideas past you and then you send them off to do it again. Mm. Um, At my most successful time in business as a leader I felt I was almost skiving because I was doing so little because I'd set the tone. Everybody knew where we were going and what we wanted to achieve and how we wanted to do it. They all knew what they were responsible for and they went off. And I would regularly get them come into my office and say, Richard, this is my problem, blah, 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 blah. And I'd say, well, what do you think? they say, well, I think the solution is X, Y, Z. It's like, but the solution is X, Y, Z. You don't need me. And they just walk out and go on. It's like, this isn't working. This is not leadership. But I had the right people. It took me a long time to do it. I found I was exceptionally bad at delegating when I didn't trust the people I was delegating to. But once I'd found people that I trusted implicitly, I found delegation incredibly easy. Mm -hmm. You're better at this than me. That's yours. You want to talk to me about anything, I'm here get on with it you know where we're going that's it and I think that early on in my career I didn't understand how different our brains are later in my career when I was interviewing people I would talk to them about really weird things and somebody once asked me why I did it at the beginning of an interview and I said because I wanted to hear how you replied if you started talking in numbers I'd interview you in numbers. If you were a descriptive person in your replies, I'd talk to you in that language because I needed to know what got through to your brain. So instead of starting off by saying, this is where I want to do, blah, 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 I needed to know whether we need 27% growth or the ambition is to take a product and to develop it. And So it was really all about how I packaged it because once I could talk the language, I was in a much better place to lead. And certainly... I've seen a lot of that Mm. in the work with Holidays for Heroes.
1: Yeah. So how long had you been leading, managing, running businesses by the time you got to to that point where you really shifted your your approach?
0: Regrettably, it it had been five, ten years. I was a bad manager for five or ten years because I knew that I had the vision, but I don't know if I explained it well enough, and I certainly didn't explain it in language that they understood. For me... That was how my brain worked, and therefore I assumed that was how everybody's brain worked. And I think the biggest mistake we make in schools at the moment is not sitting children down and saying everyone's brain is different. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'm deeply bothered by talking about the spectrum because I know there must be somebody who is, in inverted commas, normal out there but I've never met them we are all on the spectrum somewhere some at more extreme ends and taking time to work out what that person's brain how that person thinks how that brain processes it for me is the secret of getting the best out of people Mm. because you can see when you talk to them in their language a light goes off it's like I understand exactly where I am I understand exactly what I need to do off I go, and then I'll have a conversation with somebody else pretty much in a different language. You know, I'm a numbers-based person, and I surrounded myself with a couple of other, for want of a better description, geeks. Um, <laughs> We've been accused of it on more than one occasion, and we don't really deny it. And with them, it wasn't even English. It was just talking numbers. But they, we communicated in numbers, and that was very easy, Whereas for other people, I had to learn to be much more graphic, much more describing goals and making sure they got it in their brain. So it took me a long time. It took me far too long. And to be honest, I was probably only at my best as a manager for the last decade, 15 years of my career. Um, I look back and cringe on the period before that, because I think that when you have time to consider what the manager that you were it may not be as pretty as you'd like it to be
1: I'm not sure it necessarily kind of matters how long the journey is though does it I think from what you described at the end that that moment where your team really didn't need you for me like that is the the ultimate the pinnacle the panacea like if we can get to that point as a leader where we've effectively made ourselves redundant like that's that, that should be the goal, right? It takes all, all ego out of it. Like, that's where we should be striving
0: for, I think. Absolutely. And when I left that job, which I did my own choice, I, I'm still in touch with 90% of the staff. They just carried on. And it's like, I was irrelevant. Mm. You know, I got very paid very well for being irrelevant. And that's possibly the ultimate goal of all of us. Um, but yeah, you're right. But it's very nice. What's particularly nice is a couple of them message me even now and go, boss, I'm thinking of this. And it's like, <laughs> I stopped being your boss 12 years ago. But um, thank you for the compliment. I yeah. still appreciate it. Yeah.
1: And I would very much imagine that the, the transition wouldn't have been a, a single moment where you shifted from how you used to lead and manage to, to what you've described more latterly. But was there a, a, a trigger that led to that change? Was it some coaching was it some training was it some feedback you received from somebody what led you to to make that shift because it sounds really significant
0: it was and it was advice from a very good friend i'd started my first firm in 2000 and it was tough i went from working in a bank earning a decent amount of money to i think in my first year i earned 5200 pounds and um, my bills were significantly more so built up from a very low base and grew up and it's like, right, I need somebody to help me here. So I'll get a part-timer there and I need someone to help me here. So I got a part-timer there and it was somebody who turned around to me and said, you need people who share your passion and you can never get that out of somebody who isn't as fully invested as you are. And that was when I started employing people who, A, shared my passion, but B, were better than me and putting myself in financial distress to do so. So you built the business, so it then had a nice profit. And then literally, as soon as I got there, I went out and spent that money on better staff. So first and most important lesson that I had in in building a small business was to make sure that your staff shared your ideology. Mm -hmm. As I say, it was surreal because in the end, I was the one that was trying to, spend more money and then I had my staff going do we really need this and it's like no honestly we're doing this and you know I had some lovely discussions where come bonus time where historically in banking everyone's out for what they can get my own team would argue with me about how much of the profits we should be allocating to bonuses and they would argue me down because I was very aware that without them I wasn't anywhere and that the value was in the business so You know, they behaved like owners, and that's a massive thing. And that was all about talking to them in their language. It really was, because once I realised these are good people, but you're different to that person, how can I make sure that you all feel as equally involved? And, you know, I said at the start that I believe it's all about empowering staff. I'll go one step further. It's all about staff. It's all about creating a vision that people want to buy into, that want to go on the journey with you, that want to be there. You know, one volunteer is better than ten pressed men. Yeah. I absolutely believe that, and as I say, I'm very proud of the people that I worked with, not only because of what we achieved together, but because of what they've achieved after our time together and how they've grown and, you know, If I look back on my career, what do I get most pleasure out of? It's that. It's seeing how the staff have developed and grown and become wonderfully successful in their own right in whatever area they wanted to be. And some of them, it wasn't business. But, you know, the fact that they would talk to me about most things, I just love the fact that they're almost without exception incredibly successful in life in their chosen way.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, have you ever studied neurolinguistic programming or anything like that or or read about it because listening to you talk and how you so eloquent about talking to people in their language it it sounds like you have
0: no I actually haven't but I was introduced to it and the reason I didn't progress studying it was that it it felt slightly forced it felt slightly that you are mirroring and Mm. doing it in a quite disingenuous way this was simply about respecting everybody as an individual, about getting to learn who they were, because when you invest in them both personally and professionally, the rewards that you get are far, far in excess of what you give. Mm. I mean, it's terrible because I'm explaining how I got more out of people than perhaps I should have done. By being nice to them, but it wasn't about that. It was about, at the end of the day, I want to be able to look everyone in the eye and go, trust me, I know I got things wrong, but we tried to do it for the right reasons and we tried to get it the right way. And I'm not saying I did in any way, shape or form. I have a long and extensive list of mistakes. Um, The podcast is not long enough to go through those, (laughs) but you learn from them and you try not to make them twice. Yeah.
1: You mentioned vision quite a lot, Richard, in terms of creating, articulating the vision, finding people who align with it and and buy into it. What did that look like for you? And what I'm really asking here is, I see so many leaders and organizations, leadership teams, communications departments of big organizations, can spend weeks if not months crafting a beautifully wordsmithed vision statement that in the end just becomes so generic and vanilla that it could be kind of any one of 50 big big corporations yeah and then often forget to do anything with it think oh we've written it job done but for me it's only ever the day-to-day articulation of that and constantly referencing it and bringing it to life and breathing passion to it that, that makes the difference. What did us sort of articulating the vision look, look like for you and your businesses?
0: It was very simple. I mean, for me, you always started with how would you like to receive this service? Because that's got to be the ultimate, you know, what does excellence look like for you? If you receive the service, and I was in financial services, so nobody was going to reinvent the wheel or anything. We are, to a large degree, widget manufacturers. So if we're all producing the same service, give or take, a little bit of periphery, what differentiates you from the next person who comes along? Now, I've known people who make it all about performance, but if it's about performance, you're a one-year wonder, because one year you'll be the best and one year somebody else will be the best. So it was about communication. We explained everything that we did. We did mayor culpers. Where we got it wrong, we told them we got it wrong. And we explained why we did it. We wish we hadn't, but that was it. So that you, we tried to take our customers on a journey with us, our clients on a journey. They believed that we were genuine. They believed that we cared. We put our money where our mouth is in as much as we had the same investments that they did. And it really was about ensuring that we understood where it came from, where the money came from, that it wasn't just this magical thing, how hard people had worked for it and what it meant to them. Because, you know, there were times that I was dealing with people who were significantly rich, and what they made and lost wasn't necessarily what mattered. What mattered to them was how it made them feel. And one of the first things that I learned was that losing 5% of your net worth feels an awful lot worse than making 5%. It is not mm. a balanced equation. So it was very much about we understand this. I need to tell you here and now we're going to be more risk-averse than other people because I hate losing money. I'm, I'm a Yorkshireman, and we take being tight-fisted to a level... Of understanding. I mean, <laughs> the national saying of Yorkshireman is how much? Um, so, you know, the idea of losing money used to physically hurt me and it wasn't my money, but it, it hurt me. So it was about sharing that ideology. It was about sharing that vision and understanding what that does to clients. You know, I, I've been incredibly fortunate that I've spent my life around some amazing clients and I get to still talk to some most of the time about how the golf game is or something totally irrelevant, you know, of, of a 20-minute conversation. About five of it will be about where the markets are and 15 of it will be about his family or this, that, and the other. But it's actually – the vision was always pretty much treat people as you would like to be treated. Mm-hmm. And that's an, a basic ethos for life, which I'm very comfortable with. But it's also – a strong ethos for business. Just think about how you would like to receive that product, the service you would like to receive, when you would like to be called. Generally, I was relatively quiet when things were doing well. That was the ethos. There was was nothing groundbreaking about it at all. I've been very fortunate to have been involved in some very successful charitable fundraising. And people go, you come up with the greatest ideas. And it's like, I hate to break this to you. I've never come up with an idea in my life. I have stolen outrageously from others. I look at other people's ideas and go, oh, that's clever. Now, what can we do to do this, that or the other? I am an absolute magpie, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there are geniuses out there who come up with the new ideas. I'm not one of them.
1: Yeah, here, here, I'm I'm all for that.
0: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) so that's basically been the ethos. Yeah,
1: it strikes me... um... I forget your exact language just now, Richard, something around it's nothing um, re- revolutionary kind of or unique around it, something like that you said. But listening to you talk today, what really strikes me is something that I was taught as a young officer cadet at, at Sandhurst, where they just formally and informally, it was drummed into us again and again. And I've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, just how important it was to get to know your soldiers. Mm. Just this piece around how important it is to know your people to build build relationships and whilst i 100% agree with you like that's not an amazing insight right that's not not rocket science but actually i think it's a fundamental that's so easily forgotten in the business world I and mean, we can so easily get focused on the tasks and the numbers and we can lose sight of the fact that as leaders as you so brilliantly proved at the end of towards the end of your career when you felt you was skiving and not doing anything like what what we achieve is largely delivered through other people right and that'll only happen if we've got relationships that are big enough and strong enough and clients know we've got a genuine degree of care and regard for them
0: yeah I think so and the other thing that was very big for me and I spelt it out on multiple occasions if you try to read between the lines of what I'm saying you have misunderstood me If you've done something stupid, I'm going to tell you you did something stupid. Please don't do it again. Let's move on. We're never going to discuss this again. It's dealt with. If I tell you you've done exceptionally well, but I've worked with managers who were working towards an agenda and you had a feeling they were working towards an agenda. So every time they said something to you, it's like, what does it really mean? What's the angle?
1: Yeah.
0: And that's incredibly tiring. And particularly in your situation in the military, when you ask people to do something you need them to do it because they know that that's what you believe <laughs> right or wrong is the right thing to do not I know that the military follow orders and do as they're told but not to think for one second is this what he's trying to say to me or is there some meaning so transparency communication again being a blunt northerner goes a long way towards it um I don't have the finesse to talk within riddles and between the lines. It was just being very honest. Some people may say brutally honest with your staff, including in reviews where, you know, the first thing I would say is I started every single annual review with the sentence, if I say anything to you in the next hour that you don't already know, then it is a reflection of me as a bad leader and not you as a bad employee because if our communication is so poor that I hit you with any revelation in the next hour, this isn't on you. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, we generally just ended up having chats and then scored whichever scorecard we had to do for that organisation, the beloved one-to-fives and this, that and the other. But they knew exactly where they stood and what I thought and when they'd done well and when they'd not covered themselves in glory. And that may have been the sentence. If they did something stupid, it would just be that wasn't your best day. You didn't cover yourself in glory there. Have a think about what you'd like to do better and leave it to them because somebody trying to solve your problem for you never works because your brain is not the same as their brain. So I can say the answer is obvious. What you should do is X, Y and Z. But if they're not capable of doing X, Y and Z because that's not how they see the world, which is why I would always give people time to work out what they thought they'd done wrong and then come back to me and go, I think this is where I went wrong. And it's like, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. It may not have been my first analysis of where they went wrong, but my perception is largely irrelevant. They know they didn't get the result they wanted. They had to work out what had caused them not to get that result, and you let them do that. I don't want to sit on this topic for too long because I'll be brutally honest. I had great staff, and they didn't spend that much time having to work out what they'd done wrong. But you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. Successes are too easy to ride along. So we did spend a little bit of time talking about that.
1: Yeah, I think, and equally, we tend not to analyse the successes quite so much as the as the failures generally, which I think is a is a crying shame. I think that's an area where many individuals teams and businesses kind of miss out actually think something was an incredible success well 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 why let's deconstruct it so we can repeat it right
0: i would 100 percent agree with you and i'm absolutely guilty of it <laughs> yeah um but that's partly because i don't think i've ever got past the thought process that we should succeed therefore when we succeed it's like well that was what was expected right yeah um and that's a failing you know if we're going to draw up a list of things that we wish we had learned earlier that should be on the list. That'll be one of them. Yeah, yeah, it should. You're absolutely right. Yeah.
1: Anything else you'd put on that list?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. There's plenty of things that I, I would put on that list. Certainly take away the first 15 years of man management were I got it so horribly wrong. And I, I know I got it wrong because I'm not, Particularly close to any of the people that I managed right. during that time, and that's a fairly good indicator you got it wrong. My staff turnover during that time was significantly higher than it was in my later career, and I'm a big believer that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers. That if if you make somebody feel warm, valued, and recognise their achievements, it's very difficult for anyone to poach them. Mm. Because you, if somebody offers them a little bit more money, it's like, yeah, but I'm not going to feel like this. So, yeah, I mean, the evolution is ongoing, as I say, that the understanding about how different our brains are. And I am a a particularly late convert to that because I apparently was the last person to find out that I had ADHD And all of my staff knew and everybody knew. And I didn't. I just thought I had a different brain. But I had a chat with one of them. It's like, here were the eight signals that you'd lost interest. And they, they just walked me through it. And I was absolutely mortified. And, you know, I don't regard it as being an illness or anything else. It's a different brain. And it's a brain that allowed me to concentrate on a lot of different things at the same time by flitting between them. And it allowed me to do the jobs I did in the quantity that I did. I mean, at one point I got my work-life balance horrendously wrong because I had two full-time jobs and two part-time jobs. And I think we can all agree that that work-life balance is wrong. (laughs) But it was only because of the brain that I had that I could flick between them and get them all done. So be self-aware. That's the top of the list. Understand have a think about how you see the world, have a think about how other people see the world, not necessarily so you understand them, so you understand you. One of the side effects of ADHD is procrastination. I'm a lover of a deadline. When I have to do something, I can do it and do it incredibly quickly and do it quite efficiently. Without that deadline, nothing gets done. So understand that and go, right, build your own deadlines. This has to be done for this day and then... We're never going to be satisfied, are we? As somebody said, I think it was Tim Minchin said, sapiens, who was satisfied, died out a long time ago because they're complacent and they get killed off. You know, if we're not trying to improve all the time, then we're really not in the game. Yeah, brilliant.
1: Richard, I've got a. To few quickfire questions that i typically ask guests as we as we wrap up the the podcast the first one is um, and i have to caveat this now with other than your smartphone what is the one item that, if it were lost stolen or broken you'd find yourself immediately going out to replace
0: i fear that the answer is my motorbike um because it is my freedom outside of that i'm not terribly attached to anything and If I could get away with breaking my iPhone and not replacing it for a while, that would be quite attractive (laughs) as well. There is nothing that jumps out immediately other than knowing that the motorbike is in the garage gives me the freedom to get on it and be on my own and let the thoughts go through. So, yeah, it's probably the motorbike.
1: I love that. And what would you say is one book that has really had a significant impact on you or perhaps that a book you find yourself frequently recommending to other people?
0: For all the wrong reasons, the book is a book called Market Wizards by Jack Swager. And it's about incredibly successful hedge fund managers who've made a lot of money. But the reason that I particularly like it is that most of these people were quite unsuccessful for several years and got one lucky break, one particular trade that set them off on an incredibly successful career. And why that book is so important to me. Is it teaches me time and time again that there are people out there who are brighter than me, there are people out there who are harder working than me, there are people out there who are better than me in every which way. But if they don't get the break, they we never find out about them. So, you know, get rid of all ego that you've done anything special, that you are anything special. We are fortunate enough to have been in the right place and the right time. As I say, I can pin it down to my parents moving to Jersey life-changing experience, incredibly lucky for me. And that book just brings it home because, as I say, there's 16, 20 managers in there who have done incredibly well, but every one of them had one trade that started them off. Mm. And without that trade, they would never be in that book. Yeah, brilliant.
1: And what would you say are three really important traits for leaders today? The most important thing
0: in leadership is people. Find the right people Don't be scared of employing people who are clearly better than you. It should be our ultimate ambition to be the dumbest person in the room. That means that you're incredibly good at your job. Take people with you on the journey. If people understand where you're going and understand the bumps that you're going to go to get there, they will go along. When you can't explain what you're trying to achieve, it makes it much harder for people to share the vision and go with you and thirdly remember that everybody is on their own journey and that somebody can come in and have a bad day and it has nothing to do with work it has to do about ten thousand other things that are going on in their life at the end of the day and one of the things that I tried to do in my later career is where I saw somebody was struggling with something it would be engage them in a conversation that wasn't about that and find out if there was something else that was causing that because I knew that generally they could do that job and they weren't doing it very well that day. So I don't believe it was about that job. It was normally about something else. And then when you got to the bottom of something else, then it was out. And some of those conversations were exceptionally difficult for me because people started telling me things that I sat there going, No, I'm your boss. I don't need to know this. You know, they tell me about very personal things. But that's what was causing them the problems on that day. And you just tried to help them. But your most important asset in any business, in any situation, in any command, is the people underneath you. So spend 90% of your time concentrating on them and 10% of your time concentrating on where you want to be. And you will find you will get to where you want to be an awful lot quicker than if you spend 90% of your time thinking about where you want to be.
1: What an incredibly powerful, poignant and, and true point to to end on, I think, Richard. That's absolutely fantastic.
0: It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for your time. It's been, been my pleasure talking to you. Cheers. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Richard Harwood. I really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording with Richard. He really is one of life's good guys, I think. Before you go, folks, before you head off and do anything else, I say this all the time, but if you could please just take a couple of minutes to rate, review and subscribe to the show wherever you happen to be listening, it really would make a massive difference. This podcast takes a fair bit of cash and time to produce and the ratings and reviews really do enable us to keep the show going. So I would be super grateful if you could do that. Other than that, I will speak to you again next week or right now if you're going to go and listen to an episode from the back catalogue. So until next time, take care, look after yourselves, look after those that you lead and lead on.